Are you at a career crossroads and thinking about what's next for you? For career change tips, stories and resources, sign up to our newsletter at whatshedidnext.com.au. When I started the gym brand with Seb, I was still, it was one foot in each camp. Like there was a little bit of sort of sadness to be moving away from that scientific process and that scientific career. But then I just realized that I was having way more fun. (laughs) Hello and welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and this is a podcast where I talk to women about their inspiring career changes. a career you've spent years studying for can be full of mixed emotions. But for my guest today, taking a chance on a different dream has definitely paid off. Dervila McGowan had always loved science ever since she was a kid, and so she went on to study it at uni and even completed a PhD. But at the end of her studies, she realised a career in academia wasn't for her, and instead she wanted to use her scientific skills to make craft gin. Derv is now the owner, distiller and CEO at Antha, an award-winning gin brand that she started with her hubby in 2016 with no formal training. What she did have was a great palate, refined from her early days of bartending and a passion for telling stories through the botanicals in the gin. I loved hearing how Derv navigated a pretty major career shift in her early 40s and how she's now leading the way for more women in what is still a male-dominated industry. We also find out the one thing she wished she'd known before making her career change and what she's learned from building a business from the ground up. So please welcome from Geelong, Dev McGowan. So Dev, I'm very keen to talk to you today about all things gin, but let's start with your background. I'm curious to know what you thought you were going to be when you were growing up. Oh, well, when I was very (laughs) small, I thought I was going to be a vet and then somebody mentioned that I'd have to maybe put animals to sleep. So that is immediately put off the table because I love animals. Yeah. Um, And then I was absolutely loved science, anything to do with nature, biology, and I always knew I wanted to do something to do with with biology, even though that probably didn't have the language for that when I was a child. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I went to school and always did sciences and a little bit of maths, not my favourite subject, but... I loved chemistry and I loved biology. Right. Um, and then went to university and uh, actually went to university down in Geelong at Deakin and I loved it. I loved this, the content of university, but what I loved more were the parties that I went to. So the, right. <laughs> the first time I went to university, I became extremely accomplished at going to parties. So right. that meant that, that meant that my, um, academics suffered a smidge. So, uh, I stopped sort of I, after two years, I realized that I needed to get a little bit of wildness out, I think. Mm-hmm. And I stopped university, took a break and went over to um, Dublin for a while and then right. ended up in London and certainly got a lot of that wildness out in London. <laughs> as, as we did back in the day, I think that was kind of the rite of passage when, when you and I were, were growing up. <laughs> yes, it was, well, we had so much fun over there. 
And so, okay, so that's interesting. So you did always have the science interest, but you didn't go straight into it. So you were in London and you were doing the usual yeah. uh, working in bars and things, hospitality. That's right. I was really lucky uh, to work with someone called Dick Bretzel, uh, who was in the 90s, late 90s, there was a cocktail renaissance. So uh, this guy was like the the absolute uh, guru on, on cocktails and setting bars up. He, he brought in like there's cocktails that he invented at the time called one called a bramble that's still drank today. And myself and my, my future husband at the time, Seb, um, worked with him. So we were in the mix, in the middle of all that sort of, uh, new cocktail sort of renaissance, the renaissance of cocktails again. So, during that period, Seb and I developed our palates massively, massively with regard to spirits and got to know spirits really, really well. Right. Um, and it was, you know, we, we were supposed to go traveling in Europe, um, and Asia, something that we sort of vaguely were planning and we didn't, we ended up just exploring the world of food and drink in London and spending all of our available money on going out and, and having that experience and understanding wine and understanding spirits, understanding food. So mm. we would go to very nice restaurants rather than buying a plane ticket over to Prague. Yeah, <laughs> so, okay. So it was a really interesting time. And I, I sort of look back on that time and think it's, it, we chose a different sort of journey. Like we yeah. were still traveling, but it was in, it was in the culinary uh, sphere rather than the ge- geographical sphere. And so you were in London for a time, but you actually came back to Australia and you did go back into science. You studied a That's PhD, right. which is no easy task. Yes. And you chose molecular microbiology. So yeah, tell me about the decision to do that. And also for those of us who may not be quite clear what that is, yes, can you explain? So I was, I remember the day I decided I didn't want to work in hospitality anymore. I was working at a function centre in London and I picked up two cases of spirits which is heavy but I reached across and I felt something pull in my back now I didn't do a a, a back injury at the time but there was that moment of I need to I need to make a decision about a career because at that time we were just having loads of fun Mm. um, and learning along the way but hospitality is a tough career and I always knew I wanted to go back to science so that night I said to to Seb my husband I need to go back I need to I want to, I want to go back to university. I want to, you know, finish my degree and this is the career path I want. And then I'd had applied for, uh, university, uh, universities when I came, you know, from London and gotten in. I got into Melbourne and Monash and I decided to go to Monash because Monash had a dedicated microbiology department and that's where I wanted to, wanted to spend my time. So we moved back and I started my degree and and did study, found the smart students, was friends with those people because we all elevated one another mm. um, and had a very different life. There was no parties. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm imagining you with in glasses and a lab coat being very studious. <laughs> That's what I was doing, yeah. <laughs> hey, so what is molecular microbiology? Like what were you studying? What what potential career, what would you be doing as a job at the end of it? Yeah, okay, so I did my degree, then I did my honours degree, and then I went on to do my PhD. And what I found when I went through my degree was that the smaller things got, the more interested I got. So Mm. we started with, you know, when you do your degree, you start with everything, plants and 
you know, all the way down to bacteria. And I just, the bacteria kept on sitting up for me and I really enjoyed it. And then the genetics of bacteria. So molecular is down at the molecular level. So I was basically looking at the DNA of bacteria and making mutations in the DNA and then right. seeing how the bacteria behaved. And I was working with what I call pathogens, which are uh, bacteria that cause disease. So what our aim is, is to try and understand systems that may be able to be used uh, to create drugs that will fight that organism in the event of infection. Right, okay. And so you mentioned that took you about 10 years. Was that to do the whole PhD or you were working in that field for 10 years? There was, yeah, it was, I was basically did my whole uh, degree in uh, PhD over that period of time or second half of my degree. Uh, and then, then I had a baby in the middle of it all too. So, oh, okay. And then finished up. Yeah. And so at some point after finishing your PhD, you started to have second thoughts about that career. And I did laugh because I read that you actually Googled, I have a PhD, now what? <laughs> I did. Uh, so what search results did you get? And yeah, what were you so unsure about? I had a really tough PhD, which basically sucked the love out of me for, uh, for science. And I really um i feel i really felt like i could have given a lot to science because i i really enjoy the company of people and i mm-hmm. i like communicating i like having a social that social interaction and i love talking about other people's work with them because it it really lifted my work as well mm-hmm. um so the reason i realized that i didn't want to work in the area was so i would apply for jobs which are postdoc jobs or postdoctoral positions um just finished phd going there going to seek looking for a job and i press send for my application i feel a little bit sick in my tummy oh okay (laughs) and i was like what's what's that Uh, okay maybe i just had something funny last night for dinner (laughs) but then you know being a scientist uh observed that every time i actually applied for a job i didn't feel so good and so i realized that i may need to start looking for another career. And when I did the Googling, I've got a PhD, now what? Like I literally put that in because I was sort of sitting there going, I was talking to people saying, what's the next step for me? I don't want to continue with academia. And I was essentially, well, you could go into industry. And how do I do that? Um, uh, Just, uh, I don't know, just apply for jobs. So that's why I was driven to Google. Like I, I had spoken to people and the people I was talking to were in academia, so they didn't, yeah. you know, they didn't know what the other pathways were. Uh, and so one of the best pieces of information, or best pieces of advice that I was given from that search was write down what you loved about your PhD and write down what you didn't love about your PhD. And so what I wrote down that I enjoyed was collaboration, communication, um, discussing science, problem solving, particularly other people's work. And then I looked at the things I didn't like and the things I didn't like was coming in and doing the actual bench work. Uh, wow, because, okay. And I've since had to admit, which was hard, and it's only been in the last couple of years, um, that I actually was a bit bored with the bench mm. work. And because it's repetitive, you have to repeat it. It has to be done exactly the same every time because you're, you need to be able to demonstrate that the results you get are repeatable it's not mm. just a one-off thing so there has to be a whole heap of stuff done and I just didn't enjoy that so that again that was another step in in freeing me up to go and do something new and so 
where did you think you were going to go next? Like I know your husband, Seb, um, he took up a distilling job, I think, around this yeah. time. So how did that become a bit of a turning point for you? Well, I originally started at, the, at that time I was doing a little bit of consulting uh, for food waste, a uh, food waste recycling company, which was absolutely amazing. And it got, it, it, so I always wanted to use my scientific skill set to make the world a better place. And this, this job that I had was amazing because it was using nature to, it's basically composting, but accelerated composting. And I was, got into the science of uh, soil microbiology, which lit me up again, which was really fun. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed that. And that that, oh, and that was going on at the same time as Seb had gotten this other job. And when we sort of started in our careers, the possibility of ever distilling was, was not even in your thought processes because the, the uh, licensing was prohibitively expensive and there was a whole group of people headed up by the Lark family in Tasmania who went ahead and lobbied and brought the cost, the licensing cost for uh, for spirit production down. So oh, small right. families and small groups, uh, producers could actually start producing. Uh, and that was the birth of the craft spirits industry. Right. So that's sort of that little bit of background. So Seb then... Uh, so he decided he, he wanted to get a bit closer to the spirits again and he got this job at Craft & Co uh, for three days a week. He sort of, he and I talked about potentially starting a, a gin brand because gin was starting to grow in Australia. So at the time there was only about four or five brands in 2016. Okay. Oh, right. And then I sort of said to him, he's, he, I hadn't been in to see the still, so he said, let's start a brand. And I'm like, okay, well, we need to see if it has legs or went through business plan. I'd never written a business plan. I just Googled how to do that. <laughs> and then I went in and I saw the still and I fell in love with it. Like there was this, if you ever, if you can Google the still at Craft & Co, it's a beautiful 150-litre Carl still it's all copper. It's very shiny, and it just oh, wow. is super steampunk. And I just wanted to, <laughs> I just wanted to play with that thing. Uh, and I, I knew I had a, a good palate, and and I knew my husband would be doing his distilling, not using the scientific method. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we we had a little bit of uh, creative tension a little bit early on in the process. So, um, yeah. So that's and so we spent a little bit of time on a two litre still developing our recipe. Actually the recipe that we ended up using was from the 1800s because no one, people guard, obviously guard their recipes quite um, strongly. So we, Mm. we sort of went back to, I think it was 1835 to an old sort of manual and found a a recipe and that's what we hung our recipe off. Yeah. Which is really cool. And why gin specifically? What do you love about it? Well, I've always loved gin. i start my first drink was a gin and tonic actually my first drink was probably a fruit tingle I'm really (laughs) honest but like my first choice like the thing that I would go in and buy would be a gin and tonic while all my friends were drinking beer I was drinking gin and tonic and I've always been a a fan of spirits as a flavor uh, carrier so gin is the thing that is spectacular about gin is uh, it can carry the geography around it so it's you make it, you can put, you can put plants from your garden in it. Like we have 
uh, Charismatica, we put in uh, ro- um, not rosemary. Well, actually, the rosemary that's currently in it is is from my garden. Mm-hmm. So I can say that this spirit is truly a Geelong spirit because we're foraging some of those plants from Geelong. So, you know, it's, and, and so when I send that to my cousins in Dublin and me, they're in Ireland and Kildare, they open that bottle. And not only is the air at the top of the bottle from Australia, but this, the, the, the flavor of, and the terroir of the region is actually in that bottle as well. Mm. And you can tell stories. You can tell wonderful stories of the botanicals in the gin. Uh, like for example, we've just made a gin with the Royal Botanical Gardens in Melbourne. And we've got botanicals from the garden in there. Wow. Yeah. And That's one of, so cool. It's awesome. And there's <laughs> a little sustainability story in there. Uh, and that is the the fact that we've got one of the plants, area in there. It's one of the most beautiful fragrance, lemon fragrances I've ever smelt in any of the botanicals I've ever worked with. It's a really clean, lovely citrus. and. Mm. And it's just a, a little tiny ground covering, covering bush with tiny leaves. And I, I said to the, um, to the botanist, I said, I need 300 grams of this because I want to use it in the, and that's the dried weight. So we need probably maybe a kilo. And mm. he said, that's a threat. Uh, I think he said, that's a vulnerable plant. You can't have that much. Um, so I put in a single leaf of that. So it's less than half a centimeter wide goes into every distillation it's one of my favorite one of the most beautiful botanicals i've ever smelt and tasted uh but i can't use it but we can talk about that in the story of the gin saying this is this is part of the job Mm. that the the botanical gardens do they get something that's threatened they cultivate it in the gardens and then they can reintroduce that into into the wild so we don't lose that diversity in nature so it's this gorgeous way of telling those stories you know the other element for us that's important is that um that we try and communicate to people that all these botanicals in australia have been used for many many generations hundreds of generations by the first nations people here Mm. and we're at white Australia or, or, or the colonising communities are just starting to understand the bounty yeah. that we have here. And it's that's often a fraught conversation because there's so much in it. But you can use that as a way of just gently saying, look at what we have, look at this amazing country and the yeah. bounty that we have here. And then you can gently bring that other element of the conversation of, this has been used for so many hundreds of generations. Mm. And I think that in, in its own very gentle way, changing the conversation as well. And I was curious to ask about the identity shift that can come with making a career change because, you know, as we've said, you went from research scientist to gin maker. I mean, was it hard to put yourself out there at first as a gin maker and also an entrepreneur, I guess, because you weren't a business owner before. So yeah, how did you manage that shift in your mind and, and how did other people in your life react perhaps? Um, I was really confused actually because when you do uh, res- you go down the research scientist path, there's only one path. So you have academia and there probably is industry, but it's almost like industry is a dirty word. Like when you, mm. but ac- academia is the, the pinnacle to become a researcher, uh, to get your name out there and, and do good work and, 
educate, all those things are, it's, that's your pinnacle. So to move away from that is, uh, almost, if that's too tied up in your identity, you're basically saying you're not good enough in a lot of ways to be a researcher. And that's, that's what people say. Like I've heard, I've heard researchers saying she wasn't good enough or he wasn't good enough. They couldn't cut it. Um, and so there was that little hurdle to overcome. And then, but, but what I then, the way I sort of, I think I, I, I got myself around that was the work that I was doing in academia wouldn't have ever seen the light of day. I don't think Uh, if it had, it wouldn't be me that would have brought it. It would have been 10 years on 20 years down the track. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to use my skills as in a practical way. And that's Mm. why going and working in industry, working that for that food waste recycling company really helped me sort of cross that line. And when I started the gym brand with Seb, I was still, it was one foot in each camp. Uh, but then to move away from that was a bit of a loss. Like there was a little bit of sort of sadness to be moving away from that mm. scientific process and that scientific career. Um, but then I just realized that I was having way more fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what does that all mean anyway? Nothing. It just means you know, what you think of yourself. Mm. So what you do is you just change how you think about yourself. And the way I did that was, you know, what, what value, where's the values placed Mm. and the value, a lot of the value was how I was thought about by other people that I was placing. And it took to make that realization and that, that doesn't just a big epiphany one day. Oh gosh, it's, you know, I'm worried Mm. about how I'm perceived by um, professors and associate professors and colleagues and that I may be not good enough. Um, so that took a process of about six months to a year for me to, to understand that, and I had a little bit of help with that. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I no, didn't I do think, that on my own. Um, I think that's really interesting because it's, you know, I think even if we don't necessarily recognise it straight away, I think that is one of the big barriers that holds people back from doing the thing they really want to do you know it's how they're perceived how they see themselves you know maybe they've been in their job or in that role for 10 or 15 or 20 years so to suddenly go that's not me in inverted commas anymore that's a bigger deal and I think people realize yeah and I think you hide it you hide it from yourself so that was the thing that I needed help with was to actually bring that up in front in all its ugliness of and I hate thought that I would be changing my my path through life because of the opinion of somebody else like that to me is my the antithesis of everything I sort of stand for yeah Mm. that's life yeah (laughs) you know it is life yeah and when we turn around and accept when I turn around and accepted that you know I firstly had to recognize that I, I was really quite concerned about what other people were thinking and then secondly the second realization was they were not thinking about me. So mm. they're off doing their career. They're not thinking about me. So that was quite a freeing moment. And then we then have to remind ourselves about that. Like I had to remind myself about that all the time until that yeah. stuck. And look, for those who aren't familiar with Antha, your craft gin brand, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Well, the the name Antha comes from the part of the flower that holds the pollen. So it's a little bit of an ode to botanicals themselves. So without 
mostly without flowers, you won't get reproduction of plants. Mm. So that's where the name comes from. It's really bedded in that notion of plant reproduction and, and generation of our gorgeous botanicals, uh, which go, go to making our gin. So that's, that's where the name comes from. And as a brand, we're very much about um, equality and equity. So we try to – we had a full female team until about three months ago. Actually, it was probably six months ago, um, other than Seb. But Seb's sort of now moved out of the business and he's working for a different uh, company. All right. Um, yeah, so, so we really try to focus on making sure that we have a balanced team because distilling production and bartending, all of those male dominate are all male dominated areas. So mm. um, it was really interesting. Last year we did we sent an email out uh, and job ad out. It was really simple, just saying we want women to come and you know we want you know really focused on women. And we got pinged a couple of times by um, a couple of forums saying you're not allowed to do this. Oh, we, really? Yeah, because it's saying we want one gender over another. Yes, we said okay. we want men, we, but we also want men, but we really want women to apply for this. Yeah. So we, we got a huge response, which was wonderful. You know, I think it was 80, 90% women applied. Wow. I most recently sent one out, which was just an ordinary an ordinary ad, just saying, you know, Anthra is growing, come and join our team, you know, that sort of thing. It was really friendly. We had no women apply for that role. Really? That's yeah. so interesting. And at the bottom I wrote, we, Anthra is a, we, we would really encourage women to apply for the role. Yeah, But right. we didn't have it in the main body of the ad. And I just, I think it made a difference. Yeah. Well, because, it, I mean, I was curious to ask, I did notice that um, you mentioned you're a predominantly female team. Like, is that quite unusual in the distillation yes. industry even yeah. now? Yeah. Right. And so what's been your experience then as a woman in that industry? I'm really glad I'm older because <laughs> yeah. I would have found it quite intimidating. So you meet um, majority of people are lovely, but you are there is an incidental sidelining that happens. It's an uh, there's an unconscious bias. So I don't because I'm a bit older. I'm not afraid to muscle back in. Mm. But it is. I very recently was in on a committee. And I, I've tabled a, what I thought was a fabulous idea. <laughs> <laughs> and it just got no response. Right. So no one responded to it. I just said my piece and there was silence. And they went on. Right. And so I just waited and then retabled. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have done that when I was younger. Yeah. Because I was just like, you, you, you will at least say no. You won't yeah. just ignore it. Ignore. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting because I've heard women in politics say exactly the same thing when they were the one woman in that cabinet room or, yeah, the one the one woman in the room. How, how like, that's just shocking to me because I've always worked in relatively female-dominated industries and yeah, the, I can't imagine different. the awkwardness. I can't imagine the rudeness, really. I mean, it's basic, like, yeah, uh, yeah basic manners to acknowledge someone and listen to what they say. It's it's a really odd phenomenon, and you know, I I, I watched uh, the that ABC documentary on women in Parliament, Annabelle Crabb. Oh, yes. And I was just, I was, you know, how they talk about amplifying each other's voices on committees, and yes. on, yeah, and I was just sitting there going, right. So I now like. I think by talking about stuff like this, women empower one another, just going, you are not, this is not you, this is another issue altogether. 
which yeah. is nothing to do with you. Well, I love that you're, you know, empowering women to be in this industry and supporting women all the way. I think that's brilliant. I did notice in our pre-interview that you said one thing you wish you'd known before making your career change was that absolutely everyone is faking it. Yeah. What did you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I wish I'd known this prior, but I've, I've seen people in boardrooms and I've, I've seen people, other entrepreneurs. I've seen men and women, young and old throughout and I actually ask them, you know, I ask them, think, you know, I go and talk to them about how they run their companies, how they, you know, what systems they have, all that sort of stuff. And when you have a chat to someone after a while, you realise that they're making it up as they go along. Mm. Most people, like particularly entrepreneurs, I did not know how to run a business. I'm still learning. It's six years in and, and I'm still learning how to do it. I've just expanded my team and I've, you know, I've, I haven't had a chat to a HR consultancy recently and she said the magic number with your team is seven and when you go beyond seven, it's hard. It gets starts right. getting tricky. And I've now I've been working with a team of more than ten for about a year and it is hard. Mm. Uh, and, I don't, and, you know, you, do, you don't day to day, you don't necessarily know what you're doing. In the moment you make decisions and hope that they're good decisions. And I think that most people do that every day. Mm. So you do think a lot about stuff, but, you know, that decision may or may not be the right decision and you then need to be able to turn around and say to yourself and the team, that was not the right decision. We need to move to a different process or mm. system. and Test and learn. <laughs> test and learn. So, yeah, so I, I've, I've seen it across the board with, you know, and – our industry, we're really lucky in our industry because it's very open, mm. and and I and I am very open about um, how I am feeling about things with other owners and founders. So it opens the conversation up so that you can have those more vulnerable, real conversations and get a little bit of help from what you know trade on information and help each other out a little bit. And our industry is stunningly beautiful like that. We're really lucky. Mm. And what would you say is the best part about your work life now? Like you talked about there was that big transition period where you really had to dig deep and think about what your future held. You've been working on this for six years now. It seems to be going really well. So, yeah, what's the best part of the change that you've made? Um, there's, there's a lot of amazing things about it. So I, I think I imagined when I owned my own business that I'd just, you know, be sipping cocktails and doing a bit <laughs> of distillation here and there, you know, uh, and, you know, hanging out with my daughter. But uh, th there's a massive benefit to being able to say, I need to go and pick my child up whenever I want to. So that's that's element is great. The work-life balance is often tipping into work. So I have to – that's a battle I have to um, sort of fight regular mm. every day um but one of the things with work that you see is you get to develop people you know I, I i've been recruiting from the hospitality sphere and hospitality has phenomenal um people working in it they're generous and kind and really hard working and smart and um so for me to be able to try at my hand at helping develop these people that's an amazing part of the job for me 
And what would you say has been the hardest part of making the change? Like I know a lot of women worry about the money side of things, if they're changing perhaps from a stable career to a whole new venture, unknown venture. Uh, yeah, what's what was maybe the hardest part or, um, yeah, and how did you manage that financial side? Financial stuff, I'm, I, I've got this weird attitude to money and I, I always feel like, well, I'll be okay with mm. money. And it's not, I'm not from money. Like we, where I'm a working class girl and like my dad, my dad and mum were both psychiatric nurses. So we, I didn't grow up with a lot. Um, but I always feel, I've always had confidence that I would be able to, you know, have money, enough money to pay the rent and buy food and, I'm a, Seb and I are both risk takers. So, mm. and are comfortable with that. So the thing for me with finance, I was okay with it. The thing that I found hardest was to be comfortable with discomfort. So when you have those awkward conversations with staff or you have to go and speak to someone and say, my cash flow is really poor at the moment. I know that this invoice is due today, but do you mind if we, can I push that out for a week? They're awful conversations to have. Um, and there's, you know, probably many more worse conversations that you need to have, but you get better at those conversations with practice. And now I know, I know I'm really good at those conversations. I still get nervous before them and I still yeah. have to prepare myself. So yeah, that's, that's something that's, I don't think is ever going to be an easy thing for me. Yeah. Mm. And so what's next for you and for Antler? <laughs> well, we had a crazy couple of years. So we decided to open our, build and open our distillery during the pandemic. Uh, we had been preparing this process for a year before the pandemic hit. Right. And then the pandemic hit and we had to go, wow, what are we going to do here? Are we going to build a distillery or not? And um, we decided to do that. And part of that was because there was a shortage of sanitizer. And we mm. were sitting there going, we've got a skill set, we can help people, we can just, let's just do it. Um, and so I went from having a brand that we, a gin that we made at other people's, on other people's equipment, we would go and do it on their equipment, but to building a distillery, developing like multiple revenue streams coming in. So we, so we just went from having gin and selling gin to contract distilling, having web a web a really functional website that was able to manage um, digital sales and web sales, a cellar door and bar, and then wholesale, which is out to bars mm. and restaurants. So we did all that in the last two years, and now I've just got to consolidate and grow. So it's been running. We've been running at sprint for the past two years, and now I'm trying to get us all to stop sprinting and just consolidate. And I guess we can visit your distillery now, right? Borders yes, are open. You can. You're open. <laughs> so that's exciting. What do, do you offer? Is it tastings and food? Yeah, we don't have food. Uh, we So our distillery is basically you've got bar and then the distillery is just beside you. There's no right. barriers between you and the distillery. The still is there and it's a working distillery. So we've got chairs and tables and then over there there's pallets and so it's very much in the thick of it when you come yeah, into right. us um we generally try to have no production when service is on so we have um friday nights and saturday sunday tastings so people can come in and have uh, a gin flight and we'll take you through a little sensory taste tour of the gins 
Um, mm. And we give out like a little bit of some, uh, a little sort of ramekin of the um, gin botanical so you can smell oh, and taste. Wow. So that's where we sort of like really enjoy taking people on that gorgeous journey of, of botanicals and helping unlock that sensory moment. So we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and you've certainly made some pretty brave leaps in your life and career. What's been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it? Well, I have the same bravest moment over and over again. (laughs) Yeah. So when you own your own business, there's a point, a pain point in growth where you don't have enough money to, you need to employ someone. So you're all working really, really hard and, but you don't have the, the cash flow to employ someone. So there's a month or two or three where there's a gap mm. and cash flow is low and you need to employ someone and you can't. And that is holding your nerve in that time is really hard, especially early on. There were so many times early on where I'd say, this is too hard. I don't want to do this. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you, you want to be able to pay people's wages as well. Of like course. the people you have. So there's that period and that happens. I think it, uh, from what I can see, it seems to happen in every business. Mm. If they're in growth, that's what happens. So yeah, I, I, I think that's my bravest series of moments. <laughs> <laughs> ongoing series um and I think a lot of us find inspiration from other women too who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you there's a few in history so there's Marie Curie so she was uh, she discovered polonium and radium two elements she's has had a Nobel Prize her daughter had a Nobel Prize she was initially People thought that her husband was doing all the work for her and she was uh, yes, taking credit heard that. You know, that one. Um, <laughs> she was a phenomenal intellectual and just focused entirely on her work. It was said that if you didn't want to talk about physics, she didn't want to talk to you. She just That was all she wanted to talk about. Wow. But a giant. So I just, yeah, I love her. Um, and two, two women who inspire me massively at the moment are Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame. I just, um, they have done something to our society They've opened up and, and gently opened up wounds that we have mm. in our society and bravely stood there and taken all the hits because they're, they're going to be taking a lot of hits personally. And I, I just think that they, those two women are amazing, yes. strong and very, very inspiring. And if you could recommend one thing to watch, read or listen to for any aspiring career changes out there, what would you recommend? I would recommend reading or listening to Brene Brown because she talks to you as a woman and she she teaches you that the emotions that you're feeling are, re, are, are okay and that it's a strength to be vulnerable and it's a strength to be emotional. And for myself, um, one of the things that one of the emotions that I'm most comfortable with and find most powerful is anger. Mm. Um, if you channel your anger well, it is one of the most amazing motivators and activators of other people, not in the sense that you go in and shout at people, but you use the the emotion of anger to help motivate you to help motivate others. So mm. uh, I think anger is one of the most brilliant emotions um, and we're not allowed to 
We're not allowed to, to be express angry. that. I yeah. Know. And there's so many wonderful ways to express anger. So yeah, so Brene Brown, I think is a really great way of, she, she, she sort of, you know, I think, I think women in business and we're not allowed to be emotional. Mm. Right. And that is our strength. Um, so we're different. We are different from men and we are, we are strong in that difference. And I think Brene Brown makes, makes that point for us. Yeah. I love that. And if you could offer one tip to someone listening who's really feeling in need of a change, but maybe they don't know if they're making the right decision or they're not even sure what else they could do, what's your final best tip for them? I think I think you just need to 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 go inside and find out what makes you happy. Like I know that sounds trite, but think about what not make what doesn't make you happy first mm. and then think about what makes you happy. And then see if that change that you're going to do is going to fit that bill. So don't do the, I'm not happy, I'm just changing. Make sure that the, the, the next step you take is going to fit the bill of things that will make you happy. Mm. And be comfortable with the fact that you may not make the right decision and it's also okay to change. Yeah. Well, I think it comes back to that test and learn again, doesn't it? You can yeah. apply that to your career as much as anything else. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Derv. I really appreciate your time today. It's been so interesting hearing all of your insights. Thank you for having me, Jackie. It's been a pleasure to meet you and chat. That was Dervala McGowan, founder at Antha Distillery, which you can find at antha.com.au. If you enjoyed this conversation, we'd love if you could share the link with a friend or leave us a kind review. And if you'd like to stay in touch, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn at What She Did Next Podcast or subscribe to our newsletter at whatshedidnext.com.au. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Our associate producer is Catherine Cavill and this podcast is made on Darrawal Country. Thanks for listening. <laughs>